Hi, listeners. It's Vanessa. For years, ParCast has worked tirelessly to bring you an unprecedented look at history's most radical true crime events. Your support has not only allowed us to keep exploring these stories, but has driven us to keep expanding as well. So as a thank you to the ParCast listeners, I am honored to announce the release of our first book, Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. It's available on July 12th, and you can pre-order it today at parcast.com slash cults. The Branch Davidians, The Anthill Kids, Heaven's Gate, and more. Cults combs through the terrifying details never explored in any of Parcast's series before. This is a passion project only made possible by you. So we truly hope you'll enjoy it. Visit parcast.com slash cults to pre-order your copy of Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. Hi, this is Carter, host of Conspiracy Theories. Today, my co-host Molly and Richard from Unexplained Mysteries are joining me to continue our exploration of one of history's most infamous UFO incidents, Roswell. On July 8, 1947, Captain Oliver Pappy Henderson packed a bag and kissed his wife goodbye. He didn't say where he was going, but as a member of the Army's first air transport unit, secrecy was the Hendersons' bread and butter. Later that day, he arrived at the Roswell Army Airfield in New Mexico. It had been one day since a strange collection of metal and debris had been recovered at a nearby farm. Now, some of those scraps were being loaded onto a full-sized plane for transport. Henderson's job was to simply fly the wreckage to a base near Dayton, Ohio, then head right back to Roswell. He and his men did exactly as they were told, without question. Almost four decades later, in the early 1980s, the tabloids began printing strange headlines, suggesting the debris the Air Force had collected was from an alien crash. When Henderson's wife saw the papers at the grocery store checkout, she wondered if her husband knew the truth. With the story seemingly out in the open, Henderson admitted to his wife he and his crew had shuttled pieces of a flying saucer to Dayton, Ohio that day. They weren't stored at Area 51, as many believed, but instead at what became known as Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, in a secret location known as Hangar 18. But it wasn't just metal and debris. They'd also transported several alien bodies. Welcome to Roswell, The Legacy, a four-episode podcast special presented by Unexplained Mysteries and Conspiracy Theories. I'm your host, Molly. And I'm your host, Richard. Normally, on Tuesdays and Thursdays, we co-host Unexplained Mysteries. And I'm your host, Carter. On Mondays and Wednesdays, Molly and I co-host Conspiracy Theories. For two weeks, we're teaming up to bring you this special crossover on the Roswell UFO incident. It happened 75 years ago last week and kick-started decades of speculation about extraterrestrial life. 
Some reports suggest the U.S. military may have used the UFO wreckage to develop new technology or to perform illicit autopsies. Or most concerning of all, Roswell may have led to a decades-long global misinformation campaign. Today, in our third episode of this four-part series, we're covering the shadowy government programs that evolved in response to the Roswell crash. Operations like Project Sign, Grudge, and Blue Book were never meant to expose the truth, but rather to study UFOs in secret and search for creative ways to debunk them publicly. We'll also talk about the headquarters of these clandestine programs, known as Hangar 18. We'll examine the bizarre claims from military officers who work there, and we'll explore a highly contentious piece of evidence that emerged from Roswell, recently released footage of what's believed to be an alien autopsy. Next time, we'll look at the future of ufology. We'll see how private aerospace engineers and former pop stars like Tom DeLonge helped expose long-kept government secrets. We'll also examine how the destigmatization of UFO sightings is leading to some incredible new research, perhaps revealing the truth about what's really out there. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. The summer of 1947 was ground zero for ufology. As Cold War paranoia seeped into the American consciousness, reports of flying saucers were common discussion topics around the dinner table. On June 21st, Harold Dahl was with his family on their boat off Maury Island in Washington State. Around 2 p.m., they watched in amazement as six unidentified objects flew directly overhead. And then, one exploded. Dahl said a metal substance came raining from the sky, burning his son and killing their dog. Three days later, Kenneth Arnold had his sighting in Washington, near Mount Rainier. If you remember from part one, he spotted nine disc-shaped objects while flying his private craft, and his story broke the newsstands. Less than two weeks later, farmer William Mac Brazel discovered unfamiliar metallic debris on Foster Ranch outside of Roswell, New Mexico. By July 8th, the United States Air Force had swept the field, carted off the mysterious objects, and taken them to a top-secret location. 
Meanwhile, Lieutenant General Nathan Twining was following all these stories like a hawk. Twining was in charge of the Air Material Command, a branch of the military responsible for research, development, testing, and evaluation. So the news of otherworldly craft visiting Earth was precisely under his jurisdiction and of great interest. By September, Twining had typed up a top-secret memo indiscreetly titled AMC Opinion Concerning Flying Discs. The document listed several high-ranking scientists and officials Twining had presumably worked with to prepare the report. We're talking people at the top of their field when it comes to aircraft and engineering, many of whom were based at Wilbur Wright Field in Dayton, Ohio, which merged with Patterson Field in January 1948 to become Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, the same place the wreckage was allegedly stored. But more on that later. Twining sent his memo to the Army Air Force's commanding general. The document insisted, quote, the phenomenon reported is something real and not visionary or fictitious. The craft show extreme rates of climb, maneuverability, and motion. He also alluded to them being a threat to other aircraft and our planet. In light of these concerns, Lieutenant General Twining made a recommendation. The Air Force should take these UFO reports more seriously. Perhaps they should create a special task force dedicated to further research. The government took his suggestions seriously. By December, they'd formed Project Sign. Their top secret directive? Collect, collate, and evaluate all sightings and phenomena that could be considered a national security threat. It made the most sense to put Project Sign's headquarters at Wright-Patterson. By early 1948, Project Sign was hard at work. Over the next several months, they analyzed over a hundred eyewitness statements. Their top concern was determining if these unidentified aircraft were Soviet technology. While Project Sign couldn't rule that out as a possibility, some of the objects seemed to far exceed mankind's capabilities. This led many in the project to conclude that they were not made by humans. Later that year, Project Sign's findings, many of which are still classified, were shot up the chain to Chief of Staff for the Air Force. When he read it, he scoffed at the report. He refused to believe they'd found anything extraterrestrial. He claimed the document lacked any scientific evidence. And then he ordered the report to be destroyed. By February 1949, Project Sign had shuttered its doors, and Project Grudge took over the lease. An understaffed and underfunded version of its predecessor, Grudge was designed to debunk any and all evidence of alien life, which may be where the bulk of the stigma around UFO reporting really started to take shape. The operation was a campaign of doubt and misinformation to deflect from what they'd actually discovered. UFOs were mostly unexplainable and a possible security concern. But in August 1949, members of Project Grudge gave a formal statement to the media that essentially said the opposite. It went like this, quote, There is no evidence that objects reported upon are the result of an advanced scientific foreign development. 
and therefore they constitute no direct threat to the national security. In view of this, it is recommended that the investigation and study of reports of unidentified flying objects be reduced in scope. This was Project Grudge's stance until Captain Edward Ruppelt came along. He was appointed head of the program in 1951. Whoever was in charge of hiring might have thought Ruppelt would be just another government lemming willing to play their game by debunking all UFO sightings to the public. But that wasn't the case. Ruppelt knew these sightings demanded more attention. So he approached the project with a candor that had been missing since its previous incarnation, which is how Project Grudge became Project Blue Book. One of Ruppelt's first objectives was to get the public to abandon the term flying saucers. Instead, he encouraged use of the phrase unidentified flying objects. It made them sound more scientific. Objective number two, remove the negative stigma surrounding the UFO discussion. Encourage the public to report their experiences to a nearby Air Force base and assign Project Blue Book operatives to investigate said claims. Meanwhile, Blue Book's head scientific consultant, J. Allen Hynek, dealt with the press. He created an open-door policy with several media outlets and briefed them regularly on sightings. But the government had other plans for the program and did their best to water down its agenda. According to Hynek, Blue Book was wildly understaffed, primarily with low-ranking officers with no training or interest in the subject, many of whom came and went from the job quickly. Officials also applied pressure on Hynek and the others to debunk as many of the sightings as possible, no matter how ridiculous the explanation might be. For example, when lights were spotted several times over two days in marshy Hillsdale, Michigan, Hynek took the podium during numerous press conferences. His explanation? Swamp gases had spontaneously ignited. Hynek and the public both knew this was a stretch, but the pressure to continually debunk UFO sightings was intense, and Hynek couldn't say no to his superiors. Over the years, they seemed to break Hynek down. He felt it wasn't worth fighting the military, as long as he had access to the Blue Book archives, where the truth was really stored. However, in the summer of 1952, one of the nation's biggest UFO events essentially proved the U.S. government was keeping something from the public. On July 19th, Edward Nugent, an air traffic controller for the Washington National Airport, noticed seven unidentified craft flying just south of D.C., at first, he joked to his supervisor about them, until they received the same reports from another air traffic controller at a nearby facility. Around the same time, an airman at Andrews Air Force Base in Maryland saw the craft too. Only he also noticed a glowing orange ball of fire trailing in their wake. They were making their way closer to the nation's capital, and Nugent confirmed they weren't following a typical flight pattern. Moments later, the ships were allegedly hovering over both the White House and the Capitol building. Air Force jets were deployed from a Delaware base to pursue the craft. 
But just as the planes made their descent toward DC, the seven UFOs disappeared from their radar in the blink of an eye. But that wasn't the last of them. About a week later, on July 26th, more witnesses spotted several disks over downtown DC. That's when President Harry Truman contacted Project Blue Book's fearless leader, Edward Ruppelt. Last episode, we mentioned several reasons the U.S. government might want to keep UFOs under wraps. It's possible Truman wanted to subdue any potential mass panic. Because days later, an Air Force spokesperson was standing before the press, spouting the same excuses Project Grudge had used before. They said the objects on the radar screens were false readings, caused by layers of warm air trapped in the atmosphere. The explanation proved Ruppelt and the program had been worn thin by the higher-ups. The Air Force had won the battle, and Blue Book was now just as ineffective as its predecessors had been. Around this time, the CIA also began interfering with Blue Book's operations. In 1953, they established a panel of experts to review the program's findings. The group, headed by physicist H.P. Robertson, included several established colleagues, astronomers, and rocket engineers. Over the course of three days, the Robertson panel interviewed military officials, spoke with Blue Book operatives, and reviewed films, photographs, and other documentation regarding the UFO sightings. After deliberations, they claimed 90% of the materials could be attributed to weather or astronomical phenomena, like stars, meteors, and clouds, or objects like balloons, birds, and searchlights. They said they found nothing to suggest an existential threat to humanity, nor any evidence of alien life. Heineck attended the Robertson panel meetings and saw firsthand how the group dismissed some of the best evidence as, quote, nonsense. He felt their objective was to make the study of UFOs scientifically unrespectable. Which became apparent when the panel revealed its goal moving forward. Eliminate public interest in UFOs. Much like we mentioned in part two, Robertson's team recommended using the media, advertising experts, and even cartoons to make a mockery of the UFO subject. They also wanted to keep a close eye on civilian groups studying the topic because of their ability to spread convincing information. After the panel, Blue Book lost its public support and a significant portion of its government funding. Frustrated and dejected, Ruppelt resigned. In 1955, the Pentagon made its presence known. Instead of investigating UFOs, it recommended that the program's sole purpose should be damage control whenever a large-scale sighting happened. The project finally shut its doors in 1969. Afterwards, the U.S. Air Force claimed Blue Book had never found any evidence of otherworldly craft and played the whole program off as a waste of time and funding. But there's plenty of high-ranking military officials who say that's a blatant lie, and there's evidence to prove it. Inside a secret hangar at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. Coming up, a peek inside Hangar 18. 
Listeners, I have a very special announcement. Parcast is releasing its first book on July 12th, and you can help us celebrate. It's called Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. And you can pre-order it today at parcast.com slash cults. This book was written for the fans, so to commemorate its launch, Parcast will be throwing some exclusive in-person and online events featuring popular true crime hosts such as Ashley Flowers from Crime Junkie, Christine and M from And That's Why We Drink, and more. Just visit parcast.com slash cults for event dates, locations, and how to sign up. See your favorite true crime authors and podcasters discuss the cults book and have a chance to participate in live Q&As. These events have limited space, so don't miss out. RSVP today. None of this would be possible without your support, so we truly hope you'll join us. Pre-order your copy of Cults and sign up for upcoming events at parcast.com slash cults. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Now, back to the story. From 1947 to 1969, a series of government programs studied and later debunked UFOs. Project Sign, Grudge, and Blue Book were all said to operate out of the same central headquarters, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton, Ohio. Now, you might be thinking, why not Area 51? Well, at the time, this was still a mostly empty plot of land in the barren Nevada desert. Its construction didn't begin until the 1950s. So while Area 51 has become synonymous with Roswell and extraterrestrials over the years, it's not an entirely accurate assumption. Because Wright-Patterson is the original Area 51. Casually called Wright-Pat by Dayton locals, Wright-Patterson is a state-of-the-art fortress spanning 13 square miles. It has over 30,000 employees, both military and civilian, more than the Pentagon. Wright Field was historically one of the leading destinations for advanced aircraft studies. Shortly after it was built in 1917, It became one of the Army Air Corps' de facto locations to send anything they'd recovered from foreign adversaries. There, the nation's top engineers tried to disassemble and reverse-engineer those technologies in the hopes of getting a leg up. As a result, Wright Field was equipped with the best security detail in the nation and the latest cutting-edge equipment for their labs. Hence, its role in the events of July 8, 1947. According to a declassified FBI document, hours after the debris was collected in Roswell, New Mexico, it was flown to Wright Field for examination. The initial assumption was that this debris was some sort of Russian technology, so Wright Field was the most logical destination. However, this material was sent to a highly classified area of the base, one many employees didn't even know existed. Below the foundation of Wright-Patterson, there's a maze of secret tunnels, vaults, and subterranean labs. Navy veteran Robert L. Marshall recalled his father, who we'll call Albert, 
working on the construction of those tunnels back in the early 1940s. Apparently, Albert installed secret doors, vents, and compartments under the hangar just in time to receive the Roswell debris. After the summer of 1947, Albert was called in to make some repairs on the underground facility and claimed he saw a small circular craft. It was poorly stored under a loose plastic sheet. Albert might have been one of the few civilians to ever get a look inside Hangar 18, because after it was completed, it was off limits, even to some of the highest-ranking commanders and politicians in the nation. In 1964, Senator Barry Goldwater was the Republican nominee for president. Goldwater had always been interested in UFOs and tried to use his political leverage to gain more insight on the topic. Goldwater had heard rumors about Project Blue Book's operations out of Wright-Patterson. So during a business trip, the senator made a pit stop in Dayton, Ohio. He figured he'd place a call to his old pal, the Air Force's chief of staff, General Curtis LeMay. He wanted someone to give him a quick tour of Hangar 18 and its alleged Blue Room, where meetings were presumably held by Blue Book staff. Goldwater said the response he got from LeMay was chilling. He'd never heard his friend so angry. LeMay cursed him out and told him never to ask him about Hangar 18 again. Then he slammed the phone down. In 1981, Goldwater finally admitted, quote, I have long ago given up acquiring access to the so-called Blue Room at Wright-Patterson. This thing has gotten so highly classified, it's just impossible to get anything on it. Goldwater might not have gotten the answers he wanted, but there were some staff members who were exposed to the secrets hidden at Wright-Patterson. Norma Gardner was a secretary at Wright-Patterson in the 40s and 50s. She had top-level security clearance and typed up some of the most clandestine memos coming out of the base. She claimed it was also her job to photograph, tag, and catalog documents and materials related to on-site UFOs. That included objects from inside flying saucers, including the pilots. Norma admitted, at one point, she saw the alien corpses for herself— She said they were slender, with large heads and slanted eyes, and about four feet tall. She even typed up their autopsy report. Robert Thompson, a technician at Wright-Patterson in the early 50s, supposedly backed up Norma's claims. According to a letter he wrote to a friend, he said he'd heard of over 13 alien bodies being stored in Hangar 18. He vividly recalled how this pungent odor would waft through the alleyways near the facility. When he inquired about it, he was told it was embalming fluid, only he wasn't told what for. A former lieutenant colonel actually got a glimpse of those extraterrestrials. He said he was led down a series of long passageways to an underground vault at Wright-Patterson. Inside, he saw a series of horizontal chambers which were opened especially for him. There, presumably suspended in some sort of goo, were the corpses of something small, strange, and certainly not of this world. One was so badly mangled from an accident or autopsy 
The lieutenant colonel actually felt nauseous from the shock and the gore. But there are other accounts suggesting some of the ETs at the base weren't dead. In 1948, Lieutenant Colonel Marion Magruder was a student at the Air War College in Alabama. The very selective school was known for educating some of the highest-ranking members of the military. It also taught students how to handle sensitive and strategic situations, which is how, in April, Magruder and his classmates ended up at a week-long training session at Wright-Patterson. During that stint, the students were asked to consult on a matter of high importance. Magruder said he and his classmates were led to a secret room and told about a recovered craft from Roswell, New Mexico. The group was then shown fragments of the wreckage, some of which had strange hieroglyphic-like language written on it. One of the most fascinating pieces was a metallic cloth that remembered its shape, even after it was bent and molded. Both the hieroglyphics and the metallic cloth were nearly identical to what Brazel and Sheriff Wilcox had found in Roswell the year prior. After his class examined bits of the wreckage, officers told them they'd also recovered a survivor. Magruder said it was small and slender with a big head and slits for eyes. And its skin was flesh-colored but had a rubbery texture. Magruder didn't speak with the creature directly, but he felt this deep-seated connection with it, almost like they could communicate telepathically. In later years, Magruder learned from an unknown source the government had been experimenting on the creature and ended up killing it in the process. But Magruder remained tight-lipped on the subject for years, It wasn't until he was much older that he finally shared his story with his sons. Magruder said he'd been sworn to secrecy by the military, and he was threatened to never expose the truth. Magruder's son was hesitant to share his father's story for years. He eventually went public in a History Channel docuseries called UFO Files in 2006. He said he didn't want to ruin his father's honorable legacy as a serviceman, but he felt his account couldn't remain in the shadows forever. It was important for the world to know his father was absolutely telling the truth. There are plenty of other eyewitnesses from Wright-Patterson who've bravely risked their lives to expose what they saw during the Blue Book era. And the evidence didn't just disappear in 1969, when the program shut down. One researcher would certainly attest to that. In 1955, a scientific research analyst, who we'll call Jim, was at home in Texas when the military police knocked on his front door. They escorted him to a local Air Force base and told him to sign a non-disclosure agreement. Then, he and several other private researchers boarded a plane with armed guards. The flight took a few hours, and when they landed, the guards blindfolded Jim and led him away from the aircraft. All he could hear was a giant metal door opening in front of him, and then he was going inside. When they removed Jim's blindfold, he was standing inside a blue aircraft hangar. Spread about the room were thousands of mysterious objects, none of which looked familiar to Jim or the other researchers. 
The military police instructed the scientists to see what they could make of them. Eventually, one of the researchers spoke up, asking where these objects had come from. The guards thought it was better to show rather than tell them. That's when the group was taken to an entirely new room. Inside, Jim and the others saw giant pieces of silver debris and several tanks filled with a pink goo. Each of those tanks allegedly housed a small hairless body with gray skin and enormous heads. And then, one of their escorts proceeded to retell the story of the Roswell crash, indicating this was some of the recovered material. Presumably, those scientists spent the next few days looking over the wreckage, but we don't know their conclusions. All we do know is a few days later, the group was debriefed and sent back home to their families. They were told if they had any further thoughts about the objects to reach out to the base. It was an open invitation to take another look at the debris later on. And Jim took them up on that offer almost 40 years later. We have no idea why Jim waited so long or what sparked his reinterest in the materials. But in 1990, Jim checked back in with the research group at Wright Field. When he asked if the offer was still good, they said it was. And their collection had grown massively in the years since. If this is true, it means the government may have continued studying UFOs even after Blue Book shuttered its doors. And in 1995, an apparent leak from those archives blew the lid off the Roswell legacy once again. Coming up, the most contentious piece of UFO evidence is put on trial. Oh, such a clutch pickup, Dave. I was worried we'd bring back the same team. I meant those blackout motorized shades. Blinds.com made it crazy affordable to replace our old blinds. Hard to install? No, it's easy. I installed these and then got some for my mom, too. She talked to a design consultant for free and scheduled a professional measure and install. Hall of Fame son. They're the number one online retailer of custom window coverings in the world. Blinds.com is the GOAT. The GOAT. Go to Blinds.com for up to 45% off. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Now back to the story. According to several top-ranking military officials, Wright-Patterson has hosted some of the nation's biggest secrets. Dozens of credible eyewitnesses, from secretaries to lieutenant colonels, claim to see objects and creatures that weren't from this world. And at one point, they were all allegedly stored in the base's Hangar 18. But most of these accounts were purely anecdotal. No one produced concrete evidence the United States had their hands on aliens or their craft until 1995. That was when a 17-minute video surfaced, re-cementing the Roswell legacy in the modern consciousness. The black-and-white 16-millimeter film is silent, 
It shows a small, naked, and hairless, human-like creature lying on a dissection table, undoubtedly deceased. And it looks a little bit like what other eyewitnesses described. It's about four feet tall, with large eyes and a rubbery quality to its skin. It has six fingers and toes, and this particular creature appears to have a gruesome wound on its right leg. There are at least two technicians in white hazmat suits who proceed to open the creature's chest and look inside. As the video continues, they remove the organs for examination and eventually cut into the cranium. The man who discovered and released the video was named Ray Santilli. He was a musician and producer who claimed he'd stumbled on the footage accidentally. Santilli said that in 1992, he connected with a U.S. military cameraman who'd uncovered the shocking reel. Not knowing what to do with the materials, he handed the old archival footage over to Santilli. Apparently, it depicted a body that had been recovered in Roswell, New Mexico. In 1995, the clip made its debut in a Fox documentary. From there, it spread to multiple news outlets, premiering in over 33 different countries. UFOs became dinner conversation all over the world, yet again. As for who filmed the footage and where it came from, that was never fully disclosed. However, authors Thomas Carey and Donald Schmidt mention a Wrightfield photographer in their book UFO Secrets Inside Wright-Patterson. This unnamed photographer, whom we'll call Harold, could have very well been the source. Harold was stationed at Wright Field when the Roswell crash happened in 1947. One afternoon, he was working at the base's photo lab when an officer came in, snagged two 16-millimeter cameras, and told him he needed help. Harold and another photographer reported to a hangar on the property, and they claimed to see otherworldly objects inside, like a small damaged disc-shaped craft and other metallic debris. Then they went to the back of the building to a giant refrigerated room. Inside was something Harold described as a museum case with two alien creatures inside. Harold claimed one of them appeared severely injured. While he didn't go into detail, he could have been referring to the leg wound the creature displayed in the video. Harold and his partner proceeded to film the creatures. While he didn't explicitly say he took footage of an autopsy, he did say their cameras were later confiscated by security personnel, and they were threatened to never speak of the encounter again. Harold's account lines up well with the autopsy video, but many people doubted the video's authenticity from the beginning. Some argued the film bore an illegitimate military watermark, and the E.T.'s injuries didn't look like they were from a crash. Others had trivial complaints, like the pathologists didn't hold their instruments properly. Then, in 2006, Santilli all but buried his own story. Out of nowhere, he said the film wasn't completely authentic. It had been recreated. He'd seen the real autopsy tape, but instead of airing the original footage to the world, he'd recreated it. 
In 2017, a filmmaker named Spiros Molaris came forward, saying he'd helped on the fake video. He'd even recruited a special effects artist. Together, they shot the footage in a London apartment. He said they recreated the alien corpse using a latex cast, pig brains, and other animal organs. He even secured high-end costumes, props, and filming equipment to make it all possible. Really, the alien autopsy video should have been put to bed there. However, one former CIA expert turned the tail on its head, saying this autopsy wasn't fake. He'd seen it before. In the 1980s, authorities called Dr. Christopher Kit Green into the Pentagon. He often consulted with the government, referring to himself as their, quote, go-to physician for unexplained morbidity and mortality. During that meeting, his superiors showed him an alien autopsy report and several photos of extraterrestrial bodies. When he saw Santilli's video over a decade later, Dr. Green remembered that day and claimed the creatures in the photos were nearly identical. Green's assessment convinced many the footage could be real after all. Alien researcher Scott Waring was one of many believers. He said he put the video under a microscope, and after studying the footage next to other films from the 40s, the production and quality matched up. He also claimed the autopsy techniques were consistent with others performed in that era. Believing this video was authentic, Waring speculated the CIA or even MI5 may have either bribed or threatened Santilli to change his tune. Perhaps it was part of yet another government disinformation campaign. Yet the icing on the alien autopsy cake came in 2021 when the CIA allegedly authenticated the footage, allowing a frame of it to be sold as a non-fungible token, or NFT. It's somewhat vague what authenticated by the CIA means, but it does appear to be an admission that this footage was recovered from government archives, not directly from Santilli. Santilli even said, quote, when I first saw the CIA papers with their verification of the Roswell event and alien autopsy film, a massive weight was lifted from my shoulders. The NFT was put up for auction in the summer of 2021 with a starting bid of one million US dollars. It's unclear if it's been sold since. The highest bidder would also get a physical 16 millimeter frame of the original film. So if you want to be one of the first people on Earth to own an authentic piece of alien evidence, you might still have a chance. While the government seems to be slowly, albeit discreetly, admitting to the existence of UFOs and aliens, we still have a lot of headway to make. Thanks to corporate researchers, real estate moguls, and rock stars, we're getting there. Private sector investors have been pushing the government to not only speak out on the subject, but also destigmatize a 75-year-long taboo. The future of ufology has reached a crossroads. We can either start believing or we can keep denying. But that won't change the fact that there's something lurking in our skies. And it's time we start taking it seriously.
thanks for tuning in. In the next episode, we'll look at the future of ufology, how the government is finally starting to admit the truth, and a few theories on what those extraterrestrials could really be. Of the many sources we used, we found Thomas J. Carey and Donald R. Schmidt's book, UFO Secrets, Inside Wright Patterson, extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Unexplained Mysteries, Conspiracy Theories, and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. See you next time. Conspiracy Theories and Unexplained Mysteries are Spotify originals from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Nick Johnson, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This special episode of Conspiracy Theories and Unexplained Mysteries was written by Lori Gottlieb, edited by Angela Jorgensen and Kate Gallagher, fact-checked by Bennett Logan, researched by Bradley Klein, and produced by Bruce Kotovich. Conspiracy Theories and Unexplained Mysteries stars Molly Brandenburg, Richard Rossner, and Carter Roy. Hi, listeners. It's Vanessa. Exciting news. ParCast's first book, Cults Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them, is now available for pre-order at ParCast.com cults. Thanks to your support, we've compiled years of research, insights, and a catalog of case studies to expose more about these cults and the people behind them than ever before. Details which haven't even been explored in our Cults podcast. Visit parcast.com cults to pre-order your copy of Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them.